Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we show up uninvited and immediately are asked to leave. <laughs> oh, man, that's uh, that's actually never happened to me. But when I was in the fifth grade, one of the popular girls who also happened to be very wealthy, she and all her friends, super well off. And of course, my best friend and I were like poor as fuck. I literally had uh, duct tape around my bike <laughs> that I would take to school. So sad. Anyway, this popular girl threw an end of the year party and she told my best friend and me that we could come, but she wasn't going to officially invite us because it would look bad. So that was, uh, yeah, that was wild. How do children learn this shit? So anyway, grab your hot fit and your backup plan and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez. And before we get started, I want to shout out Emily Piper. Emily responded to the episode on how to heal feeling stuck. She said, I've always wondered why I get myself so stuck. It's always been situational, but you helped recognize getting stuck in mindsets. Thank you for talking about stuckness in singlehood. Yeah, girl, you're so welcome. Lord knows I have enough to say about that. And I'm so glad the episode was helpful in recognizing that sometimes the root of being stuck in a situation is actually being stuck in how we're thinking or even feeling about that situation. So yeah, get to the root, baby. Also, just some housekeeping. I'm going to take a break, y'all. I mentioned this on the last couple episodes, but in case you missed those, I'm taking a couple of months off to just like recharge my energy, take a little vacay get the hell out of town, you know, engage uh, with the, with what, with, with the vastness of life. <laughs> Such a sad thing to say. So I'll be doing that in January and February, and then I'll probably come back end of March, but there will, there'll be like, I think almost 60, I think maybe 56 episodes for y'all to go back and check out while I'm gone. So you can catch up on whatever you've missed and then I'll be back. And also... On that note, if this pod has helped you over the last two years and you want to help me make more episodes for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can just find the pod on Spotify, hit the about tab and click the link in there that says support this podcast. Okay. This week, we're talking about healing from body image trauma. I don't know how you grow up in our culture without taking on some kind of body image trauma. And even though I think that women are the ones most often being bombarded with that kind of garbage, I absolutely know that men experience it, non-binary folks, trans folks, of course, experience it with the ways their bodies are used as weapons against them. We're all so hyper aware of our bodies and what our bodies mean and what harm can come to us through our bodies, whether that's physical harm, psychological harm, emotional harm, et cetera. So this is a topic that all of us can connect to because, I mean, all of us have bodies, right? So to help us get some perspective and guidance on this, I'm so happy to welcome psychotherapist Catherine Wienig to the show. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Remy. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to get into this with you. Before we dive in, let's chat about your astrology a little bit. You are... A Leo, Sun, and Moon, Scorpio rising. Is that right? Yes. As long as my birth time is correct from my mom, 
That is correct. <laughs> yeah, we're we are in astrology very dependent on moms <laughs> knowing what time we were born. Well, okay, so this is a fascinating combination. I'm always fascinated by fire sun Scorpio rising because that Scorpio rising is very different energy from a fire sun. So let's talk about Leo sun and moon. Leo is one of those signs that if you just read the memes, you'd get a really skewed understanding of it. Leo rules the fifth house, which is the house of self-expression, creativity, children, passion, romance, fun, and good fortune. There's sort of this like childlike wonder that comes with Leo energy. And when Leos are able to like fully tap into that, they can express themselves in this really big way, which is, you know, sort of what children do. Children are super expressive, you know, like not just in their words, but also in their creativity, right? They're just like gushing with creativity. And Leos have access to that childlike sensibility in ways that other signs don't. They can really open up and share themselves. Leos love generosity, sometimes like with material things, like giving money or gifts, but sometimes it's more about giving emotionally and being emotionally warm and generous. And that's especially true of Leo moons because the moon rules the emotional landscape. So like having a fire moon can also create, you know, these big emotions or quick tempers. People with Leo moons are often really creative folks though, too, who like draw on their emotions to make art. But there's often just a real sense with Leo in the chart that this is a person who has like a big, bright, bold, expressive personality. Now that said for you, Catherine, we're working with a Scorpio rising and Scorpio and Leo are so different. Whereas Leo isn't afraid to take up space and like be in the spotlight and be really bold. Scorpio does not like the spotlight. The rising sign tells us about how a person interacts with the outside world and it gives us insight into the career path. So Scorpio rising folks are much more introverted. They're more enigmatic. They don't necessarily want to share too much about themselves with other people, especially people they don't know super well. But Scorpio is the sign of deep inner transformation. So Scorpio rising folks make great therapists because they're interested in deep change, often healing change in their interactions with the outside world, which is the perfect combination for working with others in their healing journeys, right? So Scorpio is also the one sign that isn't afraid to look trauma dead in the face, whereas Leo is a sign that's more interested in having fun. So having those together is actually a really cool, like, nice balance, the big, bold, generous spirit of Leo and the more reserved, emotionally deep probing energy of Scorpio. Does that resonate for you at all? Yeah, it does. And it it's cool that you're speaking to the like, maybe tension or contradiction between like the fire and the water sign, because I didn't really resonate with astrology until I found out my rising sign and like did kind of feel like I had this contradictory nature to my personality that like I draw meaning from in terms of that, like the fire and water combo. Um, and it makes me think of, I mean, you've given me so much to think about. I just learned so much from you about that, those signs, but it makes me think of the work of Esther Perel and she's a psychotherapist who deals a lot with trauma, but really like approaches it from the angle of like, play in the erotic and how like 
like trauma healing that coexists with play and eroticism. Um, so you've just given me a lot to think about. It's, it's super cool. I would like love to learn more. Ooh, I am so interested in reading more about that. That's really fascinating. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That um, it, it's a contradiction. Leo and Scorpio together is a total contradiction. And that's what I always tell people when I'm looking at their charts. It's like, people are like, well, I'm a this, but I don't, it doesn't resonate for me at all. And I'm like, yes, astrology is a chemistry. It's like, you have all of these these different sort of like ingredients. And this is what happens when you put them all together in this specific way. It's like you, you are what happens. <laughs> so yeah, it's so, um, I actually have a really close friend who is an Aries who has a Scorpio rising and, you know, she was just always like, astrology is stupid. And then I was like, girl, we need to look at your chart. And when I saw she was a Scorpio rising and I, I, you know, sort of talked her through it, she was like, oh shit. Okay. never mind." <laughs> So yeah, uh, I totally get it. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to jump into my experience with body image trauma. While I do that, feel free to interject with thoughts, feelings, you know, style tips for the winner. You know, if you have any style tips to share, <laughs> or you can just hang out, read a magazine, do some Tai Chi. Either way, I'll turn questions over to you at the end. How does that sound? That sounds great. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, awesome. Here we go. So when I was thinking back on childhood, preparing for this episode, I remembered that one of my earliest memories was of being a little girl and imagining myself as an adult. So to give you an image, I looked almost exactly like Orphan Annie as a little girl. I had a head of red curls that like didn't hang down. They were just sort of like this helmet around my head. And I felt ugly. I felt not sexy which is such a weird thing to say. But by the time I was four, I had already deeply tapped into what sexiness was. I grew up on MTV and there was just no escaping images of sexy women. This was the 80s when the objectification of women was just raging. Not that it isn't now, 
But in the 80s, it was a different beast because there was no alternative perspective being represented in mainstream media. And when I was four, five, you know, six, and I imagined myself as an adult, I didn't imagine a woman with big red curls and freckles and a cute little pot belly. I imagined Barbie, essentially. I imagined that I would be tall and thin with straight blonde hair and just like forever wearing stilettos, right? And I imagined myself being loved because of how beautiful I was. After that, the next moment in my childhood that I remember really being focused on body image was when I was nine. I started doing sit-ups every day, 50 sit-ups, because I saw women with abs on TV and I wanted to look like them and be revered the way that they were. Not to mention all the messaging around weight that was happening in the 90s. There's just so much emphasis on dieting and being thin and diet Coke and diet cheese and like fat-free all the things. And so like, even at nine, that felt like something I needed to do was like do sit-ups every day. Fast forward to high school. I took a ton of dance in high school. I was on the dance team at school and I also belonged to a dance studio outside of school. So I was just like constantly in rehearsal. And of course, when you're dancing all the time, you're really aware of your body. And I remember thinking, that I had a little, um, I guess what you would call a fupa now, but then I think I called it like, uh, I was like a little pudgy or something, I think is what I said. It wasn't a huge deal to me, but it did bother me a little bit, right? It was just this like kind of, oh, bummer feeling that I didn't have a washboard stomach. But when I look back on pictures of myself from high school, I cannot believe how thin I was, like walking around, having this image in my head of my body that was so incongruent with the reality. It was just like this dysmorphic thing where, and it's not, it's not like I was obsessed about it, but it was something that made me sad. And it, and in retrospect, it was just like, what, (laughs) what that self-consciousness that I experienced in high school would get exacerbated a few years later when my high school sweetheart cheated on me when I was 18. It was a devastating blow. I was totally blindsided. I recently had dinner with a high school friend who I hadn't seen since high school. And she had listened to several episodes of the pod. And she was like, it was so sad for me to hear about what happened between you and him, because I always looked at you two like best friends. Like, yeah, you were together, but he seemed like a boyfriend who was also your best friend. And her saying that, helped me understand my own trauma a little better in that situation, because that was exactly right. He was my best friend. When my mom would have these rage meltdowns and scream at me, he was who I called. When I sprained my ankle a few days before a big dance performance, he was who came over to help me ice it. When I got like really sick this one time and fucking clogged my toilet with a mountain of poo, he came over and fixed it. Like, I mean, he truly was my best friend. So when I found out that he had elaborately planned this trip specifically to cheat on me, you know, lying to me about it, et cetera, et cetera, it was like a fracture into the core of my being, like something essential inside me broke. And I had the very conscious, very consistent thought that if I had only been prettier If I had been thinner, it never would have happened. 
I want to just take a minute to unpack the way that prettier and thinner are often conflated in our culture because, you know, this is a really fat phobic culture that we live in. There are a lot of conversations around that now, but back then, you know, in the 90s, there were no conversations. It was just accepted that losing weight made you more physically attractive and desirable. And because this betrayal experience with him hit at a core wound I was carrying already from my relationship with my dad and my mom to some extent also, like I already came into the situation feeling disposable. I already felt unwanted, but I'd always felt wanted by this boyfriend. I'd always felt like we really loved each other. It was just a given in my mind. Not that we'd always be together necessarily, but that we'd always, you know, love each other. So suddenly this person who was this anchor for me has injured me in the exact way that penetrated this core wound I was already carrying. And I started desperately looking for a way to fix it, to control it, to try to prevent this terrible thing from ever happening to me again. And that was by losing weight. The underlying message I was feeding myself was if you're pretty slash thin, No one will ever betray you or leave you because you'll be desired. So I started um, starving myself. I was in college at that point and I would go to campus intentionally not bringing any food with me. And when I would feel hunger pains coming on, I would, I would just get this feeling of like being so proud of myself. Like I was doing such a good job. I was powerful. I was in control. I wasn't going to give in to the hunger. It felt like I was mastering something that was really hard to do. A few months into doing that, a friend came up to me and was like, Remy, you're losing too much weight. It's not good. It's a problem. And I just remember that even him saying that made me feel so good about myself. I was like, fuck yeah, it's working. Even though he was essentially telling me this is bad. All I heard was your work is paying off. So interestingly, though, after doing that for about a year, I started dating someone who also had disordered eating, but he was an overeater. So I was over there starving myself and I'd go over to his house and he'd be like, let's go to Jack in the Box. Let's get Peruvian food. Let's see what's in the fridge. And oddly, it just sort of um, I don't want to say healed because I don't I don't think it like healed what was really underlying it, but it got me out of the pattern of the anorexia because I felt desired again. It was like I had this new person to soothe that wound and he was always eating and always kind of like wanting me to eat with him. And so I just kind of gave up the hunger strike and allowed myself to eat when I wanted to. But it was more of a Band-Aid, right? Like, even though I didn't go back to disordered eating after that, it wasn't like I fully accepted my body from then on, right? About four years later, I moved to Puerto Rico and got parasites from a puppy I took in. I didn't know that I had parasites. And so when I started breaking out all over my face in cystic acne, I had no idea why. It was like my body just suddenly flipped out. And for two years, I tried everything I could think of to fix it. I did that like crazy cleanse where you just drink lemon water and maple syrup. I think it's called the the master cleanse, right? I saw medical doctors. I saw Eastern doctors. I put, I mean, I don't even know how many acne medications and serums and lotions on my face. Nothing worked because it was like completely this other thing that I had no idea about. 
But those two years before I knew what was happening and could like do something to fix it were two of the darkest in my life. I probably cried every single day for two years straight. I wouldn't leave my house if I didn't have to because I didn't want anyone to see me. I had terrible anxiety. I felt totally powerless in my own body. I would wake up in the middle of the night in a panic and not be able to go back to sleep. I had intense suicidal ideation. I would literally imagine climbing into a hole in the ground and watching dirt get shoveled on top of me and feel so much relief. The idea of disappearing into a hole in the ground was the best feeling I could imagine. And at the root of it all was this terrible shame for looking unattractive. And I'm putting unattractive in quotes because that was the story I had in my head. In my mind, I looked unattractive and that meant being unloved, being unwanted, being rejected. And when I think on that, there was another piece for me which was that my mom had been a model before I was born and she was very beautiful, right? Conventionally speaking, which made a lot of sense because my dad only dated women who checked the boxes of mainstream beauty. All my life, my dad had girlfriends. I never knew my dad to be single. And for a while, it was like one girlfriend right after the next, boom, 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 all of them fucking knockouts. And so I tapped into this feeling really early in my life because my dad is a narcissist. And so my dad like really didn't care about me as a person and really wasn't so interested in being a dad. (laughs) And so early in my life, I tapped into this feeling that my dad didn't have any time for me, didn't have any affection to give me, couldn't have cared less about me, but he had time for his girlfriends. He was openly affectionate with his girlfriends. And I think somewhere deep in my psyche, I absorbed this belief that in order to be loved by a man in a relationship, I would need to be a knockout. Not being beautiful and sexy meant men not giving a shit about you, which is how I felt around my dad as a little girl. Which, of course, I was getting confirmation for not just in my my personal relationship with my dad, but also from the culture, right? Even today, movies will have some ancient ass dude on there having a whirlwind romance with a 21 year old woman, right? Like it's fucking crazy. And the messaging is always men are allowed to age, to look however they look, to just be in their bodies. But if you're not 21 thin with clear skin, blah, 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 as a woman, then like, good luck, sweetie, right? Like that's the culture that we live in. So the acne for me was a fucking nightmare. And it brought me face to face with this wound of not being loved, which by the way, I differentiate from not feeling loved. Like I said, my dad is a narcissist and genuinely doesn't know how to love anyone. I didn't grow up not feeling loved by my dad. I grew up not being loved by my dad. And the grief of that which I had never worked with or looked at at that point in my life when I was having this like acne episode was suddenly this deafening scream in my face every single day for two years where I was telling myself, you'll never be loved if this doesn't get fixed. The last thing I want to name in this conversation is the struggle I'm having now with aging. I'm days away from my 43rd birthday and I'm watching my body age. I'm watching my skin change, my face change, my hair. I mean, talk about feeling powerless. 
Of course, if you want to look like Dolly Parton, who, by the way, is a national treasure, no disrespect to Dolly at all. But if you want to take that route and fight aging in this day and age, you can do that, but you'll be fighting relentlessly and it will cost you a lot of money, right? Because no one gets out of aging. And for women, the reason that's so terrifying is because our culture only values us when we're young. And that's not to say that individual people can't value a woman as she ages at all, but as a society, right? Like in the messaging we're given as a society, the reason the beauty industry is a billion dollar industry many times over is because women are so scared to feel like they're losing value, to feel like they're losing love or to feel like they're losing importance and meaning within the culture. Film and television and of course, fashion are some of the most obvious perpetrators of the narrative that women are only important when they're young. And whether we like it or not, it's media that we've been taking in since day one, right? Like since Snow White gets saved by the prince and the evil stepmother who's so jealous of Snow White's youth and beauty gets hit by lightning, right? (laughs) But like, I kind of feel like we need a fucking reboot of Snow White, but from the stepmother's perspective. I mean, obviously she's a sociopath, so that's terrible. But I just don't think there's enough content about the grief and fear that women experience letting go of youth. I don't know how many stories there are of men leaving their wives for younger women. This culture we live in of men treating women like they're just cars they want to trade in for like a newer model. And the heartbreak is that in a scenario like that, which is so, so common, neither of those women is truly loved, right? Like both of them are being used. So it means more than it means to age in our culture. It means a loss of value in the culture, not intrinsically, right? Like not innately, but in the culture. And we can sit here all day and talk about self-love and valuing ourselves. And that's obviously important and necessary, but it's not an either or. We can feel self-love and value ourselves and feel grief for the loss of, you know, feeling valued within the culture. Granted, this is a sick culture, (laughs) But we're hardwired to want to belong. It's part of our reptilian brain to associate rejection from the community with death because that was the reality we experienced when we lived in tribes. If the tribe rejected you, you were as good as dead. So really all of that is just to name that it's not like shallow to fear aging in the U.S. It makes sense. It's akin to a loss of your tribe in this greater sense. And there's also the way we've been taught by our mothers to look to men for safety and belonging because for so long, women were forced to figure out ways to make men want them because women women couldn't own property, couldn't have credit cards, couldn't get high-paying jobs. So making men desire them and want to marry them and stay married to them was a means of survival. We are only just now barely on the other side of that system. Our grandmothers 100% lived in that reality. And that wasn't that long ago, right? Plus nine times out of 10, then, you know, they raised our mothers within that reality as well. Like my grandmother did, for example, she stayed with a man who truly beat the shit out of her children because he was their financial means of survival. She couldn't afford all those kids on her own on a secretary's wages. So our grandmothers had that view, right? That was their perspective. You got to keep a man, raised our mothers with that view. And then our mothers raised us with some kind of 
whatever like their perspective was from that time period. Either they told us outright that we needed to look young, thin, whatever it was in order to keep men interested, or maybe they modeled that to us without ever saying it. I mean, there are women too, who are like, fuck this, I'm not doing this. Right. And that's amazing. But there's also this other side of it that I think a lot of us experience, right? It's like this energy of your body doesn't really belong to you. It's a tool to keep men around so that you can survive in this world. And my mom, even though she never said that outright, I think that was a huge part of her energy. And we could call this ancestral trauma. But again, women couldn't get credit cards in the U.S. until 1974. (laughs) My mom was 24 in 1974. That was not that long ago. So if there's fear for women in aging, I just want to validate that. Trying to look young forever is a fawning trauma response to a culture that has abused women for centuries. It's rooted in trauma. So this is sort of the struggle I have found myself in in the last few years as aging has become more and more of a reality for me, figuring out what the root of that is and how I want to show up around it. Which brings me to this. What's been helpful for me in healing my own body image trauma? Obviously, this is something I'm still working through, but there are some things I can offer here. When you look at all my stories together in this episode and consider the root of them, these are all moments of feeling sort of like cleaved from my true core. I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, but so often in my life, when I've thought about myself, I'll see myself in my mind's eye from the outside. Like I don't <laughs> I don't think about what it feels like to be inside my body looking out through my eyes. I'll think about what it looks like to see myself from the outside when I think about me. So when I think about me, I think about how other people see me. I don't actually think about what it feels like to be me. Right? It's this process of being taken from ourselves, this feeling that we don't occupy our being, we don't occupy our bodies, even for ourselves, we exist outside of ourselves. And so the healing is an actual somatic process for me of returning to the body. When I catch myself seeing myself in my mind's eye from the outside, I take a minute to take a deep breath and return to myself. I'll intentionally stop and imagine the feeling of being inside my body and seeing the world through my eyes. I mean, I don't have to imagine it because it's like what I live. It's such a wild thing, right? To like, like this is actually my reality. But if I think of myself, it's like suddenly my reality is gone and and I, and I just am um, an image, right? And so it's this process of like getting back into my body, knowing what I know, seeing the world through my eyes, feeling what I feel in my body. It's just been wild to me how hard this process can be, how hard this um, work, this somatic work can be because I'm so accustomed to being outside myself, to seeing myself through others' eyes rather than through my own experience of being me. All of these experiences these moments of struggling through body image trauma have been from being taught that my value in the world rested on standards of beauty that I couldn't meet rather than going inside and naming some of these deeply valuable parts of my humanness, right? Like I am generous. 
I'm fun loving. I'm a good listener. I'm creative, right? These pieces of me that actually make me who I am. I didn't grow up in a home where I was loved just the way I was or like seen in my wholeness. My mom saw me and approved of me when I achieved or when I made the vibes upbeat at home, right? And like cheered her up because she was a real roller coaster. And with my dad, absolutely nothing I did made him see me or value me. For those of us who grew up with narcissistic abuse, I think it's really common to learn to see yourself outside yourself because you're trying to survive a home where your value is placed on what you can give to someone else or not give in the instance that your parent views you as a nuisance or a burden or whatever, right? But you're taught so early on in life to see yourself through your parents' eyes and to take on the perfectionism that they are requiring of you. Like in these abusive homes, you're thinking, I have to do everything right or else I'll get screamed at or rejected or whatever. Rather than to see yourself through your own eyes and know what it feels like to fully be you and be loved simultaneously, right? Like even when you're sassy or depressed or angry or in a bad mood, you know, whatever it is. And because that perfectionism becomes our lens for survival and getting love and getting affection and getting approval, we transfer it over to how we relate to our bodies. Or anyway, that, that's been part of my story, right? Like this feeling of we have to have perfect bodies in order to be loved. And just like it was our parents who decided if we were good or not or lovable or not, and we became used to needing approval from someone else who makes it very hard to get said approval, right? As adults, we just transfer that power dynamic over to the culture because the culture also makes it very hard to feel loved. It's like, you'll be lovable when you lose 10 pounds. You'll be lovable when you get clear skin, right? Or when you get lips full of filler or, you know, like Botox and on and on and on. It's certainly not telling us we'll get love for being smart or ambitious or creative, right? So as an adult, suddenly I've been tasked with seeing myself the way I should have been seen as a child, not as a nuisance, not as a crutch for someone else's happiness, not as disposable, but as joyful, artistic, compassionate, loyal, curious, all these things that are essential to my core that are unchanging about who I am. Instead, we tell ourselves that our lives can really start once we've checked all these boxes that go back to our bodies, right? Once we've done all that, then then we can date, then we can look for a relationship, then we can feel good about ourselves, then we can travel, then we won't be depressed, right? Like, then I can have my life back. When in reality, all of those things are fleeting and none of those things are who you are. There's a woman in my life who's like a mother figure to me. I love her so much. And I was texting her about something hard I was going through the other day. And she texted back, remember who you are. And I was like, damn, a lot of us have to go on a whole ass journey to even learn who we are because not one single adult in our childhood was reflecting back to us that who we were mattered or was precious or that they saw us for exactly who we were in our totality, in our wholeness and loved us. So it's a journey of reclaiming that, which is huge. That's that's not something that happens overnight. And you don't just decide that and then like, you know, you flip the switch and everything's different now, right? It's a, it's a process. So 
One other piece of healing that I want to share is that I've started intentionally bringing media into my orbit that counters what I've been taught about my body and about aging. I've screenshot pictures of women who are aging with deep reverence for themselves, who embrace their bodies, who are fun and playful and stylish well into their 60s and 70s. I love looking at pictures of the French actress, Isabel Huppert, who is, she's such a, I mean, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong because she's French. She's such a badass and she's so sophisticated and brilliant and stylish and just like in her, you know, essence, right? She's just fully embraced her age. There's a woman I follow on Insta. Her handle is welcome to Heidi. I love her too. She's 63 and she does these outfit of the day posts. She has incredible style and she talks over the videos about things she's learned in her journey and things that are coming up for her in her life. And it's just this deep reminder for me that aging is the, isn't the equivalent of all these stories I've told myself about like being discarded, being not valued, et cetera, et cetera. So having these real tangible examples whether that's of people who have different size bodies or people who are living beautiful trans lives or people who are other abled, whatever your specific story around body image trauma looks like. I think having those visuals can really start rewiring our thoughts and catalyze our healing, knowing that we can choose a different way for ourselves, right? Like choose a healthier path and look to those who are already doing that for guidance and validation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, Catherine, how are you doing over there? I'm doing good. It was beautiful to hear your stories and like reflections. Super wise. Oh, thank, thank you. Well, let me let me jump in with you. Let me start with this question. What are different ways that body image trauma can show up for people? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think you've already spoken to it really, really well in that there's so many ways it can show up. You know, this idea that we all have bodies, so we can all relate to this to some extent, but sometimes it's helpful to think about like bodies are the sites where we experience a lot of oppressions, right? Like whether that's from racism, sexism, ableism, issues related to our gender identity and even food insecurity, right? Like it's, yeah, those are like the sites where oppression can be manifested or like projected onto. And then just like you were explaining all Also, interpersonally, abuse can be projected onto the body. And especially, you know, the further you get from like Audre Lorde's term, the mythical norm, like a white, cis, het, able-bodied person, the farther you get from that, the more vulnerable you are to those, to those oppressions. What's interesting about body image trauma is like trauma intersects with our bodies in so many different ways. One way of thinking of trauma is that it affects our relationship with ourself, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the world. And our body, just like you explained, is this way we can perceive ourselves, we can interact with others, and we could be seen by the world or experience the world. And then we know that trauma is stored in the body. So our relationship to our body 
has so much to do with how we experience trauma, process trauma, and then also heal from it. Wow. I had never thought about body image trauma being related to like um, the body keeps the score, but that makes so much sense, especially if I, well, I'm just thinking out loud, so maybe I'm wrong, but I'm thinking like, especially if dissociation was a way that people handled trauma, this like leaving the, having to leave the body in order to, to survive a moment or many, many moments and how that might manifest in like a, um, a relationship to the image of your body that like where you maybe start hating your body or you start feeling like I'm ugly or whatever it is, because you just want to get out of your body because it doesn't feel safe to be in your body. That makes so much sense. And I had never thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. And this symptoms, like symptoms of eating disorders, or maybe symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder, those can be really effective tools for helping us dissociate or escape painful emotions. Or if we learned growing up, just like you said, that we're we're not going to be seen or safe as our full self. How a child copes with that is by turning off really all emotions inside. And to sustain that over a lifetime, sometimes we need tools. And um, things like disordered eating are really helpful for that. Mm. Can you Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Whether it's binge eating, restrictive eating, in terms of like biologically, it turns off our connection to like our hunger and fullness cues. We, we're not as in touch with our emotional lives when physically we're starving or in feast or famine because of cycles of binging and restriction. Whoa, that's so interesting. When I think back on that experience of being cheated on, I think it was a way for me to try to control. It, it was definitely absolutely a way for me to try to control the situation to be like, I'm never going to let myself get hurt like that again. So if I'm really pretty, it, it won't ever happen again, which of course is like, you know, I was clearly 18 you know, that because it's just like, what a wild thought to have. But I think also it was sort of a way, like, I think this happens a lot with breakups where women will kind of be like, and I'm speaking to women because I am one, but I think maybe this is something a lot of people do. I just know that I do, or that I've seen a lot of my girlfriends do is like, um, after a breakup, they'll like dye their hair or like they, they want to change something on their bodies because it's a way of trying to, well, I can only speak for myself, but it was for me, this like, I'm going to get pretty is a way of not feeling the grief and not feeling the sense of rejection or not feeling the, um, whatever other emotions come up, like I'm not good enough. And that's why this happened or what, whatever the psychological stuff was, we just sort of are like, we're, no, we're shutting that off. And we're like, you know, going to lose 10 pounds or going to, you know, like whatever the, the thing is. Yeah. And in, in a society, in a world where women, people with other marginalized identities lack power and control systemically, changing our bodies or kind of the way diet culture is handed to us on a platter can feel like this way where there is some possibility to like exert power and control in our lives when in, it's very valid that like there you do have less because of your identities in this world. Like you have less power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's a way of trying to like get your power back. Mm hmm. Well, that brings me to my next question. I think a lot of body image trauma comes from feeling powerless or wanting control, wanting to find a way to get control back. Can you talk about the role that power control and powerlessness 
play in body image trauma? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we know that trauma and specifically interpersonal abuse is a risk factor for things like eating disorders or body dysmorphic disorder, the disorders kind of connected to body image. And we understand, you know, abuses of power as someone, you know, exhibiting power and control over another. But like with that, what can be really helpful, and I've been learning this in recent training, is differentiating control from agency. Because if you've experienced an eating disorder, this might feel familiar where like it can very much be this way of seeking control in a life that feels very out of control or where you don't have control in a family system where you have no control. But there's this paradox where like the further you get into disordered eating, the more out of control your relationship to your food and body becomes. So it's kind of like a paradox, like you're seeking control, but it really can spiral out of control. And so you actually, you don't have control at all. So especially from a treatment perspective, it can be like, well, how is this behavioral strategy that's out of control meeting a need to have some control? Agency comes in because control means we have some determining power over outcomes in our life. Whereas agency is like, I can make my own choices and respond to situations my own way. And so it can be helpful to think about a drive for more agency in one's life as what's underlying some of those like disordered eating symptoms, um, especially when the behaviors do become out of control. This can also show up, you know, sometimes the, the trauma someone experiences is very directly related to their body. Like it is, maybe that's chronic illness. Maybe that is bullying, oppression directly related to someone's body size. But sometimes also the bodies can be, our bodies can be where we project other types of abuses and insecurities onto because almost as like a defense mechanism or there's there's the idea that I have some control and agency over what I eat, how I dress, how my body appears to the world, how I'm perceived, even though really we don't. <laughs> you know, more and more research is coming out. It's like, we, we don't have control over our body size. Two people can like, embrace the same restrictive diet and have completely different bodies. And, you know, we can't control how others view us. We can only control how we view ourselves. So I think that's kind of a roundabout answer. But I think, again, there's so many ways that depending on your story and who you are in the world, power, control, agency, and body image and trauma like intersect. I love this distinction between agency and control. Because it's, and I, this is like, I love it because this is something that I've never thought about before and something that I'm going to want to think about more. We actually don't have control in so many of the ways that we think that we do, but we do have agency. Obviously this applies to how we interact with our own bodies, but I also think it just applies to literally everything, <laughs> like everything, mental health, knowing the difference between control and and agency is so valuable because you're right. So many of the things that we are like constantly, all these things we're doing to try to like feel like we have power in places where like maybe we just don't, you know, I think people who are anxious often, well, I'm speaking from, I'm, this is me thinking right now, like my anxiety is because it's trying to prevent anything bad from ever happening. <laughs> and then I can't, in the end do that which is really hard right and that's the that's the um struggle that people with anxiety have is they're constantly just trying to prevent 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 right they want to be in control so they don't feel vulnerable to the myriad um snafus that life brings you 
if I can't control it though, then what? It's like, okay, now I let me look to agency. I, I couldn't prevent this thing from happening, even though I did all the things, but now that it's happened, I have agency in how I choose to show up around it. I can make a decision about how I relate to it, how I think about it, how I work with it, how I heal from it or not. Yeah. I think that's really, really powerful. Yeah. It's a cool concept. I've been really exploring it too, since it's been brought to my attention. And, um, you know, since we're talking about, you know, trauma and abusive relationships, we, we can't control how someone treats us, but we do have agency, but like whether we stay or leave. Right. And, you know, if we're coming from like, I want to be desired, right? Like that's the, that's what's motivating a lot of body image stuff is like, well, I want, I want, I can't date if I don't feel pretty, right? Like I want to be desired. Ultimately, we can't really control that. We can, you know, like whether or not people, it's like, as soon as you think that you've got the perfect body, then the, the trend changes or then like, you know, for so long, it was like, you had to be so thin and now it's like fillers in your ass. And then it's like fillers in your ass is out, you know, <laughs> ultimately it's like the agency around what does it feel like to be in this constant state of anxiety about how I look? Do I want that for myself? Does Is that good for me? Do I want to be with someone who's only attracted to me because X, Y, Z thing that I've worked so hard for and it does, it's like out of my best interest to do, but I did it because I wanted to feel desired, right? Or, you know, well, okay, let me, let me, let me ask you this question. I feel like this is kind of, um, I feel like there's so many places you can go, but I'm, but whatever comes to mind, what are some of the things that are often operating beneath the surface of body image trauma? Yeah. Good question. Um, relational trauma. So when you say that, that means like trauma that occurs in interpersonal relationships, specifically like close relationships could be just like I was saying earlier, there is a correlation between childhood sexual abuse and eating disorders. You know, we look at all like all people and all mental health conditions as like having a biological component, psychological components and social components. So there can be, you know, biological factors, whether that's like genetic predisposition to disordered eating or or an anxiety that like lends itself to preoccupation with food or there's like sociocultural factors like you know we're speaking to like the U.S. context but like what are the messages and the values that we're surrounded by that influence um, how we perceive ourselves and how we move through the world and how other people treat us you know throughout what you were saying with your story I like really appreciated how because sometimes with pathologizing of body image trauma there can be what I feel like is gaslighting to people that like their preoccupation with their body is nonsensical or something, which I, I definitely try to stay away from because like the research shows, you know, the closer you are to the mythical norm, or if you are a woman, like the more aligned you are with typical beauty standards, the more likely you are to get jobs. The research shows how much these societal perspectives determine your quality of life and like life outcomes. Damn. That is such a fucking hard truth to swallow. And it's, but it's real. And it's why so many people 
feel so pressured to change the way they look. And I, I think I, I'm going to butcher this because I don't remember it super well, but I do remember watching something about exactly what you were saying, people applying for jobs. And I, I don't, they didn't use the term, um, the mythical norm, which is Audre Lorde's term, but they were talking about the more you are considered, con- considered like conventionally attractive, the more likely you are to be hired in different places. And of course, if you're a white cishet dude, that, that was like number one for getting hired. And then after that was like, um, you know, white cishet woman, but even within all of that was like, yes, but are you thin? Are you tall? Is your face symmetrical in this specific way? Right? Like, do you look young, but not too young? Right? Like all of, there were all these factors. And I mean, I like, we can talk about jobs, but like talk about Tinder, you know, how many, how many people are going to respond to you if you look this other way, right? That's not considered conventionally attractive. And how like disheartening is it when you try to date and like, it's the pressure of the culture. It's just, it's a real part of our lived experience. And yeah. And then what I was speaking to was this, I mean, I'm, I am also a cishet woman and I'm coming into this conversation from that perspective. Well, here's what I'll say. The intense pressure for me between understanding the line of what is me just like authentically expressing a sexual nature that I already have within me, which is like, I just have always skewed sort of like sexually expressive. It's never been a hard, like I'm, I'm so out there with my sexuality. I'm fine with it. It doesn't feel vulnerable for me to do that, but I don't always know the line. Like where is what, what part of this is who I am and what part of this is feeling pressured by the culture to be this way. And now that I am like reaching mid forties and like, (laughs) lines are appearing and things are changing, you know? Um, And that means on some level, letting go of this sexiness, it's, it feels like it's identity shifting and that's really confusing. And I think anytime when we're talking about body image trauma, that's the thing that's so, that's such a fucking, yeah, it's a mind fuck because it's like, but this isn't my identity. My body isn't my identity but it feels like it is. And so I love that you talk that you bring in this piece about relational trauma. And I don't think a whole lot of people think about the fact that relational trauma, like having being in an abusive relationship, being, being cheated on being, um, having narcissistic parents or like whatever, all these different things can add, can contribute to this experience because of this exact thing that I'm talking about, of this cleaving, right? The separating of who I am and what my body is, right? Like where they get conflated to I am my body and the way that trauma plays a role in that, which I think is so fascinating. And I think, you know, I've never thought of that before. Yeah. It's cool to hear you work it out. And when, especially when we're thinking about narcissistic relationships, like, you know, for the a narcissist, it's about how you look, not how you feel. 
And I mean, that in the narcissism in our culture cultivates that too. And so, you know, shifting out of that can be starting to pay more attention to how do I feel versus how I look, which speaks to that process you were talking about of how we can like objectify ourselves or can like view ourselves as an object in our own lives rather than the subject, which is something that developmentally starts to happen for girls in the preteen years. Like their psyche starts to see themselves in that way. Um, I would be curious to see research on people with other marginalized identities, if it's similar. And do we think that that happens to girls because of media? Why do we think that happens? I think it's like a complex interaction of things, but definitely media and it's like very societal. That's when developmentally adolescents start to become more self-conscious. I think in that transition from girlhood to womanhood, when girls starts to become more aware of the cultural narratives surrounding her, surrounding other girls her age, that's how she can start to see herself. Yeah. I love, I love, love, love what you say to shift out of how I look and start shifting into how I feel. Mm -hmm. Which can, I want to add, for someone who's a survivor of trauma, that can be really scary. Mm. Like that might be done best done with the support of a clinician or like in some sort of therapeutic setting. Because when we have experienced trauma, we feel really unsafe in, the, in how we feel. Totally. And so again, speaking to those survival mechanisms, focusing on how we look can be a really helpful way to distract from how we feel. There's a safety component to like being able to return to what it's like to feel inside your body and to feel safe and to have that done in a therapeutic way. For a trauma survivor, doing that too fast or without like the proper supports, that can be re-traumatizing. Right, which it com that completely makes sense. It's like, don't think about how you look, think about how you feel. And you're like, wow, I feel like shit, actually. <laughs> yeah, I feel really traumatized is how I feel. Yeah, right. Exactly. We want to make sure that we feel safe and to make that transition for sure. Let me ask you this. So much of the trauma at the root of body image is the feeling that our value as a human is directly linked to how we look. And this is kind of like what we were, this is another way of talking about what we were talking about. How do we start to dismantle and heal that belief? I think like doing the work we were just talking about in terms of like tuning more into how we feel versus how we look, identifying our values. Anyone could Google like list of values. I think Brene Brown has like a really long one just available for free online um, and exploring what is important to me that has nothing to do with my body. And the interesting thing about values is they do change over time and they, they especially might change in the aftermath of trauma, but they are much more static and unchanging than things like our bodies, like our bodies go through so many rapid changes just over the course of development or like because of things that happen outside of our control. So tuning into not what is my value to others, the society, but what do I value? So that could be like creativity for someone. It could be wealth for someone. It could be family, the myriad of things, but like what's most important to you. And then focusing on cultivating those things in your life a little bit more so than maybe like, what did I eat today? Or how much should I exercise? Or how many times have I binged this week? But like, oh, what are my values? And how can I incorporate them into my day-to-day -day existence more and more? Mm. We've covered so much. I'm like reflecting on all of the things that we talked about. There was so much. Is there anything 
else that you want to add that you feel like we didn't hit? Well, I do. I feel like we hit this, but like want to speak to it a little more directly. The field of like body image and eating disorders historically has been viewed as this is an issue that affects cis white women of a certain socioeconomic class, of like a higher middle economic class. My textbooks in grad school even said that. That's out of date information. The more and more research that is done, the more lived experience that is coming to the fore through social media is that actually things like food insecurity, marginalized identity, whether that's in terms of gender, sexuality, or race, or ethnicity are just as, or sometimes more so susceptible to these kinds of issues. And so just, I think it's really important whenever we're talking about, you know, body image and disorder eating to throw that out there. And then like with that, and like all the ways that it does affect men and like male identifying individuals too. But yeah, and then if, you know, I'm always so tempted to throw out resources for people who might want to like continue these conversations or learn more. So I could always like send you some of my favorite links. Oh, great. But yeah, it's it's such an expansive conversation. People's stories are so different. Incorporating trauma into this conversation, that's also newer to the field and really important. Yeah. You saying that relational abuse or relational, um, was it a re- relational abuse? Yeah, you could, yeah, that you could call it that or relational trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that plays such a powerful role in body image trauma. I had never, I mean, I knew that in my own experience, but in a bigger picture, I, I didn't know that relational trauma played such a huge role. I think it comes back to this idea that you brought in this difference between control and agency. We want to control our lives so that we stop getting hurt so that we don't ever experience this heartbreak again, so that we know that we're safe. And the truth is, you know, life is going to life forever and we can't control every little thing, but we do have agency over how we view it, over the decisions that we make, over whether we choose to look at how we look versus how we feel. All of those things are part, are are within our power. And I, you know, as we close out this conversation, I just want to thank you for all the pieces you, you brought in and that piece, especially because I'm real, like, that's a huge takeaway for me to go forward thinking about about the difference between what I have control over and what agency I have available to me. So thank you so, so much, Catherine, for coming on. I've loved this conversation. I've learned so much. Oh, I've loved it too. Thank you for having me. Thank you for creating the space and you do such cool work and it's just been a pleasure. Oh, yay. Yay. And if you guys want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear, you know, hit me up. I'll cover it. Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, find us on Facebook. It's such a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about what we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can. You can give a dollar, five dollars, et cetera. I pour myself into this podcast. I put a ton of time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show 
forward slash the Petrama Party and scroll down to the support button. And you can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.